morning, church. Good to see you all. My name is Justin. If I haven't met you yet, I'm one of the elders, uh, pastors here at Peninsula Grace. And uh, excited to jump into Daniel uh, chapters 7 and 8 this morning. We're talking about fantastic beasts. And where to find them, if you get the reference. So we are, and we are fascinated uh, as a people with the end of the world, end times. Almost every year, uh, one of the highest grossing um, genres is post-apocalyptic movies or TV shows. Uh, the most watched cable television show of all time is The Walking Dead. Uh, we know with movies like Hunger Games and uh, Matrix and Terminator, right? He'll be Bach. Uh, I am legend. Uh, if there's anything Hollywood has taught us over the years is that in the end, uh, Will Smith will be the last man standing, right? Because he will have slapped all the bad guys. That's, uh, that was too soon, too soon. Now, we are obsessed with when and how the world is going to end. Is there going to be a war? Is climate change going to wipe us out? Will there be some worldwide pandemic? Like, that'll ever happen, right? Uh, our Christian subculture, too. Like, we're going, man, how is this all going to end? Nothing riles us up more than an end times debate. Is there going to be a rapture or not? Will Kirk Cameron get us through this thing? Like, who is the Antichrist? Uh, you know, some say it's Zuckerberg. We don't know. We're going to find out. Is, is the COVID vaccine the mark of the beast, right? Here's a hint. No. Um, when exactly is Jesus going to come back? Why are we so obsessed with the end times? Well, we've been preaching through the book, book of Daniel this summer, uh, if you've been with us. The first six stories that we saw were narratives, the familiar stories like the fiery furnace and, and Daniel in the lion's den we saw last week. But now we get to the crazy back half of Daniel. The last six chapters um, where we see a lot of these visions and prophecies, uh, what scholars call apocalyptic writing. Now, how many of you have been like, I cannot wait to dive in to the back half of Daniel and get into all these visions and prophecies? Is that you? Uh, how many of you were like, I, uh, can we go please go back to the lion's den? Like, I want nothing to do with the visions and prophecies. This is crazy stuff. It scares me. It gives me nightmares. Um, that we, if, I believe, if we have ears to hear this morning, what God is trying to tell us in Daniel 7 through 12, man, I think it can give us this deep, needed hope, unlike anything else in Scripture. This morning, we're going to start by looking at simply how to read this type of writing that we call apocalyptic. Uh, we're going to look mostly at Daniel 7 this morning. We're going to touch on chapter 8, but there's a lot of redundancies in the chapters, so uh, we're really going to hang out in chapter 7 this morning. Um, how many of you, when you're reading the book of Revelation or these passages in Daniel, you're just like totally confident, you know what it all means, you've got it all figured out. How many of you just have it all Unlocked. Okay, good. We're, we're in a good place here this morning. Um, it's a confusing genre of scripture. It really is. And we remember the Bible is one book of 66 books, and each of those books uh, have a different writing style or genre, we would call it. Um, to understand any kind of writing, whether it's the Bible or just in general, we've got to understand the form and the function of that genre. What type of writing is it, and what's the purpose of that type of, of, of writing. So we know in the Bible we have narrative or stories like much of Genesis and Matthew. We have letters, epistles, some call them. Uh, we're going to go this fall into the book of Ephesians. It's a letter, uh, so it would be something like First Peter. Uh, then we also have poetry all over Scripture like the Psalms. Well, this morning we're going to dive into what we call apocalyptic writing. This is the back half of Daniel. These are the majority of Revelation and Ezekiel, Jesus, uh, dipped his toe into this genre in Matthew 24 as he talks about uh, things to come. Um, and so what, is, what does this genre uh, mean? What does it have for us? Well, 
the word apocalypse does not just mean end of the world. A lot of times we hear this and we just think it's kind of, again, just Will Smith and his dog hanging out. Everything else is in flames and destroyed. Uh, The word apocalypse um, actually is just a word that means to uncover or to reveal. This is where we get our word revelation, right, to reveal. This is an idea of seeing the true nature of something as it is. Uh, We can think of apocalyptic writing in the Bible like this. It's God showing us reality from his perspective, which, of course, the way God sees it is reality, right? That is the way that it really is. So imagine, like, when, when, when you go to the doctor, um, I'm, I'm coming with my perspective, right, my symptoms, how I feel, but the doctor is there to uncover, to reveal his perspective, things that I couldn't see from my own. So we have the x-ray. You know, we, we, have, we have his doctor brain revealing things that my non-doctor brain couldn't figure out. He's showing me an uncovering, a revealing uh, from his perspective as to how things really are in my life. And that's kind of like apocalyptic writing. God here, like what a grace, what a grace that God has shown us what we need to know. God in his word gives us a heavenly perspective, a heavenly perspective on our earthly reality. And so what in particular is it that God's trying to teach us in apocalyptic writing? Well, Ian Duguid, a commentator uh, on the book of Daniel that I've really leaned on heavily, he's uh, really enjoyed his commentary, he said it this way, Biblical apocalyptic is a revelation of the ending of this present age, the, the age that we're living in, which is an age characterized by conflict, there's an, a, a gross understatement, and its replacement by the final age of peace, an age to come. It shows us ahead of time the end of the kingdoms of this world and their replacement by the kingdom of our God and his Christ. That's the Messiah, Jesus. This revelation is unfolded in complex and mysterious imagery. Yeah, no kidding. And has the purpose of comforting and exhorting. That's a word that means to encourage, to lift up. Exhorting who? The faithful, those who believe in God's perspective. Now, notice here what he's talking about. This is not, when we talk about apocalyptic, we are not talking about a when which to give us control. I think a lot of times we become obsessed with when exactly Jesus is coming back, which, didn't, what did Jesus say? Even the Son of Man doesn't know the time, right? That's up to the Father. And, and we get obsessed with which kingdom represents which nation today and, and, and kind of which event or which date lines up with this and that. And I think a lot of times our heart motive in that is just control. That if I can know exactly what's coming and when in the future, it gives me a sense of control over my reality. I don't think that's the purpose of apocalyptic writing. I believe the purpose is a what-how to give us hope. A what-how. In broad brushstrokes, what is going to happen at the end and how it's going to come about. That, this evil version of the world is going to come to an end, amen? And that Jesus, his good and peaceful reign will come. See, remember the context here. Daniel is writing in exile with a tiny Jewish remnant. They are a marginalized minority that's living in this Babylonian ocean of evil and oppression. And he and his people, they needed to know that their God, that Yahweh was still on the throne. That they, they needed to know that ultimately he would triumph over the evil that was all around them. That they needed to know that, that their God would free them from their oppression and bring them home. And yes, there would be more suffering for Daniel and his people, but that ultimately being faithful to God was the only way forward. 
And don't we need that today? Man, as we look around our world, it can sure seem like evil is winning, doesn't it? And at times, when we see the reality, Jesus and his followers, we are always going to be, in human history, the kind of the marginalized minority in this version of the world. And, and I would say today, the United States of America, we're not persecuted, right? Like, we get pushed back. Like we, we get made fun of. We get more and more ridiculed. Uh, I wouldn't say we're a persecuted country yet, but we see the trajectory. We see where things are going. And maybe today we don't feel the full brunt of what Daniel was feeling in exile, but we see the way that this is heading. And we, like Daniel, man, we need the hope that our God is still and will always be on the throne. And one day, fully and finally, he will overcome all evil with good. So how do we read apocalyptic well? I would say we need to major on the majors. Let's major on the majors. And again, Ian says it better than I could. If we understand, he says, the central purpose of these passages and focus our attention on, here's, this is important, on what is clear and straightforward. What do we know from what we're reading here rather than on what is complicated and obscure? And there's plenty of that. Then we will find blessing and encouragement in the apocalyptic portions of the Bible. He goes on to say, what is more, and I think this is super important, Christians who hold to a variety of different end times scenarios can agree on these central truths, which will minister to all believers, whether the Lord returns sooner or later. I want to hug this guy. He's reminding us, don't get lost in the weeds of exactly the date and rapture, no, pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, all these kind of details. We can split hairs on the minors and lose sight of the major truths that God is trying to teach us in this genre. And it is not when Jesus is coming, it is that Jesus is coming back. So let's look at this, let's dive into Daniel 7 together. First of all, the scare of monsters. We're going to meet some scary monsters here. Verse 1, in the first, this is Daniel 7. In the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon, Daniel had a dream with visions in his mind as he was lay, lying in his bed. He wrote the dream, and here is the summary of his account. So we're actually going to, tra- if you've been in the book of Daniel with us, we're traveling back in time slightly. So we're in chapters 7 and 8 of Daniel, and when he, this time period is back in chapter 5 when Belshazzar, and the Babylonians were still in control. Because if you were with us last week, the Medes and the Persians and under King Darius have taken over and are now running the empire. So he's going back to where we were in chapter 5 before Media-Persia had taken over Babylon. Now, I don't know if anybody in here is prone to weird dreams or nightmares, but Daniel has a dream here, and based on his recounting, I would suggest that he lay off the dairy for a while because this thing gets... Pretty wild. He says in his vision at night, I was watching and suddenly the four winds of heaven stirred up the great sea. Four huge beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. Now we're going to see Daniel in the first six chapters was interpreting other people's dreams, like the King Nebuchadnezzar. Now he's going to have some dreams of his own. And we're introduced to these fantastic beasts. And where do we find them? We find them in the sea. Notice here it says they came up from the sea. Now in the ancient Near East, the sea symbolized chaos. Uh, These were a desert people who did not know the oceans. And so ever since Genesis chapter 1, the sea was referred to this body of chaos and a symbol of rebellion against God. Um, We're going to notice that one of the features in apocalyptic literature is it's highly symbolic. All these symbols. These are not literal images. They're symbolic. And that's one of the things that makes it so hard to understand. And and the more that we read scripture, the more we're going to start to understand what these symbols symbolize, right? The sea often represents chaos. 
and rebellion. That the, these horns we're going to read about often represent uh, rule and power. Uh, and how do, we, how do we know what these symbols represent in Scripture? Well, there's no way around simply staying in the book. As we read the Word of God over and over, day after day, we're going to become more familiar with this imagery. Listen, we can't read the book of Revelation and understand what's going on if we don't see all the Old Testament imagery in Ezekiel and in Daniel that John in Revelation is riffing on. Like he's just pulling imagery out of the Old Testament. So we've got to know the symbols throughout the Bible. There's no fast track here in the Word. But we do have helps out there. A help that I would really recommend is the Bible Project guys. They do an amazing job. You can, on YouTube, uh, their podcast, they do a great job at tracing these themes and images and symbols throughout the Scripture to give us a clearer idea of what's trying to be taught here. So we see these sea monsters representing chaos and rebellion and disorder on earth. And now we're going to check out these monsters under Dan, Daniel's bed uh, in particular. Verse 4. The first was like a lion, but had eagle's wings. I continued watching until its wings were torn off. Now I guess it's just a lion again. It was lifted up from the ground, set on its feet like a man, and given a human mind. This kind of riffs on the story of of Nebuchadnezzar earlier in in Daniel, doesn't it? Suddenly, uh, verse 5, another beast appeared, a second one that looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side. I like to picture the bear doing like a plank. <laughs> He's getting ripped. Uh, he has three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up, gorge yourself on flesh. After this, I was watching. Suddenly, another beast appeared. It was like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. It had four heads, and it was given dominion. So each of these beasts are taking over the beast before it. After this, while I was watching in the night vision, suddenly a fourth beast appeared, frightening and dreadful, and incredibly strong, with large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed, and it trampled with its feet whatever was left. It was different from all the beasts before it, and it had ten horns. While I was considering the horns, suddenly another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. It's just horn chaos, right? And suddenly... In this, uh, suddenly in this horn, there were eyes like the eyes of a human and a mouth that was speaking arrogant. I'm such an awesome horn. So what are the, each of these crazy monsters representing here? Uh, and, and, and man, I hope this is not literal. So the meaning of the monsters, um, we, we, we jump down to verse 15, and we're going to see Daniel have what he's seeing start to be interpreted to him. As for me, my spirit, uh, Daniel, was deeply distressed within me, and the visions in my mind terrified me. That would be a scary thing to see. I approached one of those who were standing by and asked me to clarify all this, probably one of the angels that was there. So he let me know the interpretation of these things. These huge beasts, he says, four in number, are four kings who will rise from the earth. So remember, these visions are not codes for us to crack that ultimately God is going to reveal to Daniel what he needs to know. And he's going to reveal to us what we need to know as well. So again, we want to see what is being taught here, what is being revealed. If you remember, um, so these four beasts that we're seeing here, if you have been reading with us in the book of Daniel, this sounds a lot like what Nebuchadnezzar's dream was back in Daniel chapter 2, where we saw a four-part statue And Daniel was revealed that these were kingdoms that would come one after the other. And each of these represented worldly kingdoms that would exalt themselves as uh, apart from God and try to run the show. Now, again here, it's tempting to try to identify which four kingdoms are which. 
And there are scholarly guesses out there, people who have, are way smarter and have read the Bible a lot longer than I have. And we have good reason to believe that these could line up in the more present interpretations of, of Greek, the Greeks and Medo-Persians, the Roman Empire, and that maybe one of the horns is Antiochus Epiphanes. Like, we can play that game. But it's not made clear here. Now, in chapter 8, you'll read that it is shown that the mutant goat and mutant ram that have these battles, the, the, the interpretation is given that, that the ram is Medo-Persia and that the goat is Greece. So there we're shown. Here we're not. And so this suggests that to understand this passage, we do not have to understand exactly which kingdom is which. In fact, I think that sometimes trying to play that guessing game can distract us from the main point of the text. Now, what we notice here at the beginning, did you notice it said the four winds of heaven were stirred up from the great sea, and there were four kingdoms. Um, that oftentimes in the biblical pattern, these four winds are representing um, the, the covering of the whole world, the four corners of the earth, right? Flat earthers get excited for a moment there. Uh, the, the four compasses, four compass points, right, are, are, are the simple point here is that these, this chaos, this rebellion from the kingdoms of man is coming from every direction on the earth. And so what's, what's being communicated here is that life in this evil, sin-filled age will always be this way in this age. And, and notice, too, that these animals, these beasts that are being presented here are predatory in nature, that these are beasts that devour they devour the nation before them. They're taking, taking, taking. And it says that this little horn speaks arrogantly. This is speaking of the kingdoms of this world that are marked by violence and arrogance and lust that are taking and taking. And, and we see this perpetuated through human history, right? Whether it's been Nebuchadnezzar to Nero to Stalin or Hitler to Putin. I mean, over and over again, we see these predatory beasts. In fact, the world superpowers of today continue to mark themselves by these, these symbols. We have the Russian bear. We have the Chinese dragon, right? We even have, gulp, we have the American eagle. Now, this is how sports teams are too, right? They want to win. They want to crush the opponent. So our sports teams are lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. Right? We're not the Sabatna doves. Right? Let's just jump ball and kind of hug for a while. Right? The Kenai koala bears. That's just not going to happen. Right? That's not the point. But here's an important thing to think about. These beasts that we're talking about here, they do not represent the bad nations and kingdoms as opposed to the good nations and kingdoms. The reason that these kingdoms are beastly is why? Because they're comprised of sinners. And which earthly kingdoms are comprised of sinners? All of them, right? <laughs> the point here is not to change bad nations into good nations. Now, yes, there are kings and rulers that have been wiser than others. There are, there are systems of government that are probably better than other systems of government. But ultimately, all kingdoms of this world are corrupt and in themselves hopeless and selfish and opposing to God, because that's the heart of every single sinful person on, from all corners of the earth. And the point of apocalyptic literature is to show us that nothing less than a new age can change this world. 
That it's not going to be a better version of a worldly Babylon. That's our hope. It's not going to be the better version of an earthly king that's finally going to give us what we need. It's got to be a kingdom not of this world. It's got to be a king not of this world. But the good news is that there is a new age coming. Amen? Let's check that out. The next thing we're going to see is the Son of Man. There's the scare of monsters. But then there's the Son of Man is coming. First of all, we get a vision of the heavenly court. Verse 9. As I kept watching, his, his, his dream continues. The thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. I love this name. This is a name for God himself. The Ancient of Days. A God who is outside of time, who's always been and always will be. And it says he took his seat. That was a symbol for his authority. When we wait for the president to sit down, then everybody else sits down, and the action starts. God is setting things in motion. Verse, 10, or verse 9 continues. His clothing was white like snow. His clothing was white like snow. This is a picture of uncompromising, radiant purity from the ancient of days. It says the hair of his head was like the whitest wool. This is the wisdom that comes with age, right? I'm getting a little bit of wisdom in my beard these days. And his throne was flaming fire. Its wheels were blazing fire, a symbol of all-consuming power. These are the original Hot Wheels we have here. And these, these wheels are on fire, wheels that turn and, and travel. This is a God whose power is everywhere and all-powerful. And, and what do we see here? We see an eternal judge king, this ancient of days, who rules with wisdom. This king has the ability to sort out what is right and wrong. And he has the purity to always choose the right thing. And he has the power to enforce those judgments. This is the king of kings. In verse 10, a river of fire was flowing coming out of his, from his presence. Thousands upon thousands served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was convened and the books were opened. These are the books of judgment. It's saying judgment on the earth is about to go down. Verse 11, I watched then because of the sound of the arrogant words the horn was speaking. As I continued watching, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to the burning fire. This arrogant ruler, and I picture him like continuing to have his arrogant yapping as he falls down into the fire. And God's like, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, goodbye. Books closed on your face. All right. And verse 12, as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was removed, but an extension of life was granted to them for a certain period of time. So it says these monsters, the kingdoms of this world, are going to receive final judgment. Justice will happen. But do you notice what it says here? An extension of life will be granted to them. They're going to continue to rule, Daniel, for a little while longer. But there is a limit to their reign, to their time of ruling the world and the oppression of God's people. But the question is, if all these human-turned beasts are not fit rulers, who is the one who's fit to rule the world? That's what Daniel sees next, a vision of the coming Son of Man. It says in verse 13, I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a Son of Man was coming with the clouds of heaven um, notice here, is this, is this person, wait, who is this person, and are they human or are they divine? And the answer is yes. Look at the, it says, one like a son of man. Now, they appear to look like a mortal being. Um, in the Old Testament, God will refer to other humans as son of man. He does with Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 2. But notice it says he's not a son of man, he's like a son of man. It's one who has the appearance of a human being. But then he also says 
that this one, like a son of man, is coming with the clouds of heaven. And that is a symbol of divine authority. Throughout the Bible, only God is riding on these cloud chariots. And, and, and God does not give humans authority in the way that he's about to give this one authority. Notice he's going to call ultimate allegiance to the Son of Man and worship. It says, and he approached, so the, son of, the Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. And look at what the Ancient of Days, God himself, bestows on this one who's like a Son of Man. He was given dominion and glory. There's only one who gets the glory, right? And a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. From cover to cover, we see that only God will reign over the whole world forever and ever. Only God will receive all glory. And this one who has the appearance of a man will receive this kind of glory and dominion forever. And we know who this is pointing to, right? Now, how many of you uh, love, like, how many of you, your favorite description of Jesus is Son of Man? Like, you're always just like, dear Son of Man, right? Son of Man loves me, this I know. Like, that's the one you're just always calling him. Probably not, right? But what's interesting, in the Gospels, our probably least used term for Jesus is the term that he uses for himself the most. Son of Man is the way that Jesus identifies himself more than any other title. And there's that famous scene right before his death where he's standing before the high priest. And they ask him, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that's promised? They know the prophecies. And Jesus answers them, yes, I am. And look at this. In Mark 14, he says, I am, said Jesus. And you will see. And here he quotes directly from our passage in Daniel 7 this morning. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And they yell, blasphemy, because they get it. These Pharisees, these high priests, they know the prophecies and they know he is claiming to be the God-man that will receive the kingdom power forever and ever. Remember, apocalyptic is, is showing God's perspective on reality, unveiling how things really are. And from man's perspective, and man's perspective, Jesus came in weakness. He came as a baby. Right? Babies are weak. I got a four-month-old. I can totally bench more than she can, right? <laughs> Babies are weak. And then he failed in a weak rescue attempt to save the world. He died a horrible, shameful death. And the monsters of Babylon sure looked like they won in that moment as the Roman soldiers and the Jewish high priests and leaders are all standing around mocking and laughing the failure of this son of man. But from God's perspective... God's perspective in that moment? He said, that's my boy. And that's my son being lifted high as the mighty, eternal king. The son of man, fully God, fully man, has just in this moment defeated the evil of Babylon. And he didn't do it with a bigger sword. He didn't do it Babylon's way of another predatory animal devouring the next one. That Jesus won the victory by laying down his own perfect life for evil. For, for mankind, not for evil. But. but here's where it gets even better. The story doesn't end with just Jesus left on earth with everything else obliterated like Will Smith. Jesus humbly becomes like a son of man, like a human, not just to rule over the earth, but to do so with 
his covenant people. See, from man's perspective, those of us who believe that this moment, that Jesus was lifted high and crowned king, defeating Satan, sin, and death forever, man, to the world, we look like suffering idiots. Are you going to follow this guy? That you're going to claim this stuff? There is no God. What's our world telling us today? This is foolish. And it's easy to look by sight and believe that, right? When we see all the brokenness in our world as the nation's rage, as we see the political division in our country today, as we see our own suffering and broken homes, as we see even deeper into our own suffering and broken hearts, then it sure looks like Babylon is winning, that this is hopeless. And from God's perspective, the angel is going to confirm, like, yes, that the Babylon beasts will inflict suffering on those who are faithful to the Son of Man. But there's a day coming. And three times he shows, yes, there's suffering, but look at what's to come. Verse 17, he said, these beasts, for a foreign number, are four kings who will rise from the earth. That the kingdoms of this world will rise. They will have power for a period. But who? The holy ones of the Most High. The ones who believe and follow the Son of Man will receive the kingdom and possess it for how long? Forever. Yes, forever and ever. He says, as I was watching, this horn waged war against the holy ones and was prevailing over them. There was a time that this arrogant earthly king was prevailing over those who follow the Lord until the Ancient of Days arrived and a judgment was given in favor of the Holy Ones of the Most High. For the time had come and the Holy Ones took possession of the kingdom. Finally, he says, he will speak words, this arrogant king, against the Most High and oppress the Holy Ones. There will be suffering for those who follow. He will intend to change religious festivals and laws and the Holy Ones will be handed over to him for a time, time, times and time and a half a time, for a period of time. But the court will convene and his dominion will be taken away to be completely destroyed forever. The kingdom, dominion, and greatness of the kingdoms under all of heaven will be given to the people, the holy ones of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will serve and obey him. He says, yes, you follow God. If you're faithful to Yahweh here in this world right now, there will be suffering. Sorrow will last for the night. But... Joy comes in the morning. At the end of this, we, the holy ones in Christ, will serve and rule with him forever and ever. Now, at the end of these, both of these chapters, look at Daniel's reaction. This is Daniel's reaction right here. At the end of chapter 7, it says, This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts terrified me greatly, and my face turned pale. Brother's going to faint, right? But I kept the matter to myself. At the end of chapter 8, same thing. I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for days. I was greatly disturbed by the vision, and I couldn't understand it. Daniel is left terrified and literally sick. Why, though? Didn't he just see how it's all going to play out? Didn't Daniel just see the good guys win in the end? Shouldn't he be throwing a party? Why is he laying down terrified, pale, and sick? Remember, Daniel's got to live through all this chaos, right? Like Babylon's about to be wiped out by the Medo-Persians. And Dan where's Daniel? In Babylon, right? Like imagine seeing a vision of our own town getting ravaged by some foreign invader, knowing that you're going to be here when that happens. He saw the terrifying things to come. And yes, he knew what was on the other side, but he knew what we'd have to get through to get there. And I picture, remember Jesus in the garden and the Son of Man was praying? I mean, he knew how it was going to end. His father told him. 
He knew of the resurrection. He knew the joy that was going to be his afterward. But there he is, prostrate, sweating blood, saying, Father, if there is another way, let it be so. Why? Because he knows the suffering, the humiliation. He's about to be separated from his father. But Jesus takes the terrifying step of faith toward Golgotha, trusting his father's view of reality, his apocalyptic over the earthly one. And man, guys, like it's good for us to come to the Lord and be honest about our fears and our doubts. God, this doesn't make sense. Your way sure doesn't look like the way that wins. And we have to learn what is it to take terrifying steps forward by faith, not by sight, pressing into God's version of reality. And here's, here's where we land the plane this morning. Uh, my question for us to consider is, will we trust God's perspective on reality or will we see the world through man's perspective? So first of all, how do we see the modern-day Babylonian empires? The reality is, man, we cannot put our hope in Babylon. Our hope is not that we can make America great again. Now listen, we're called, Jeremiah 29, to seek the peace and prosperity of the city. We want to see our nation flourish, but it is never, our hope will never be in crafting the idealized version, our idealized version of America or any nation. They're all worldly kingdoms ultimately. But we also can't fear Babylon, whether it's where America is going or the nations around us. I hear people talk about how scary it is to think about raising kids in this world today. And that's understandable, right? These are scary steps of faith. But the reality is, we know how the story ends. Where do we find the fantastic beasts? We find them at the bottom of the sea of chaos, defeated forever. And what might today look like a roaring lion coming at us will one day look like a kitty, just like this moment in Aladdin. Look scary? Not scary, right? In the end, we know what God will do to the beasts of this world. Let's get that off the screen. Secondly, how do we see our own hearts? We've got to remember that we're not called to see good people and bad people, good nations and bad nations. It's been said the line of good and evil runs through the human heart. Each of us is a sinner. And, and the heart examination I need to do is on my own. The Babylonian beast that I need to be concerned with primarily is myself, my own sinful, lustful, arrogant, rebellious heart. And we ask ourselves this morning, Man, am I excusing my sin Am I seeing it the way the world tells me to see it? It's not that bad. Everybody does it. It's all good. Am I justifying my sin? Am I making excuses? Am I, am I making it seem not as bad as it is? Or do I see even the small sin in my life the way God sees it? And that lines me up toward a trajectory of sin and destruction. Do I see the sin in my own heart as the beastly image that God sees it with? Or do I see it the way the world sees it? And I'm seeing homes and hearts ripped apart when we fail to see our own sinful hearts the way God sees them. Finally, how do we see our neighbor? We're not called to see our fellow man as the enemy. The beast is not the Democrat, nor the Republican. The beast is not the transgender. It's not the pro-choicer. It's not the one who's mistreating me. Our battle, the Bible is clear, is not against flesh and blood. The monster is indwelling sin under the rule of Satan. We're called to punch sin in the mouth, not our next-door neighbor. That we're not called to beat people up on social media. We are to see people as captives of sin that need to be freed. 
Our job is to go into the world and announce that we have all rebelled against the Ancient of Days and have become beasts. And we see from Nebuchadnezzar, when we try to raise ourselves up, we become beasts like the, those in the field. But our call is also to bring the good news of true hope into Babylon, that the Son of Man is coming on the clouds. And he will rescue every son and daughter who has taken the scary steps of faith forward, waiting through the suffering to rule and reign with Jesus forever. And that, that's a hope that can motivate us to stay faithful in the present. Amen? Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that you, in your grace, have given us a glimpse of reality in your word. In fact, you've actually shown us everything that we need to know about today and tomorrow. And God, we all have a lot of unanswered questions in our own lives, in our nation, in our future. But Lord, you tell us what we need to know, not what we want to know. And so we just trust you, Father, and we ask for the grace to trust you more. That in this scary world, as we raise families, as, as we take steps forward to live in this reality of an increasingly post-Christian world, Father, it's scary. And we know, like Daniel, like there's a lot of suffering left for us to walk through. Father, I pray that you, by your grace, would give us eyes to see reality the way you see it. That we would start by examining our own hearts and the sin that needs to be repented of and taken as seriously as you do. And that we would see the people around us, our neighbors, our nation, the way that you see it. That we are to bring this message of hope and light into a world of despair and darkness. But God, we cannot do that on our own. We have one hope, and it is the Son of Man who's coming on the clouds of heaven. He alone is where we build our hope and find our righteousness. We pray these things to the Ancient of Days in the beautiful name of the Son of Man who's coming back soon. And all God's people said, Amen. I dare not trust the sweetest pain.